Well, good morning. It is great to be uh, back with you again. And um, I'm excited about this journey through uh, one Kings, right? We say first Kings in, in the U.S. So I'm, I'm excited about this journey through um, this portion of the scripture and um, the push it gives even to me to be studying in, in areas that I'm maybe more used to just generally reading through. I don't know that I've I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on First Kings four or five. Um, maybe I have at some point, but that's one of the things that we love about uh, digging into the scripture and then just kind of moving through uh, an entire book. It forces us to think about some things maybe that we hadn't thought about before. So that's where we're going to pick up in just a few minutes. I want to start with this idea. When God called Abram uh, back in Genesis chapter 12, he made some pretty incredible promises. So uh, the Lord makes these big promises and then through the years some of these things are uh, fulfilled and other promises get added to the list and those get fulfilled and God just continues to be uh, at work but some of the promises just take a long long time to um, to really get to be uh, completely fulfilled in uh, Genesis 12 2 God promises to uh, Abram that he is going to make him uh, a great nation will come from him uh, in Genesis 15 he says that Abraham's descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then over the years, he did promise various leaders to give them land and to give them peace. And, and he promised to be their God, that he promised to be with them. But as we move through the Old Testament, what we really see is uh, Israel are slaves. Israel ends up being um, just a pilgrim sort of nation. They have to ask for permission to cross through certain areas and they wander and they live out of tents. And they're always facing attack, whether that's been from uh, their neighbors or sometimes it's from their own uh, house, right? We, um, we know from David's life that David was often just attacked by his own sons and uh, there was just turmoil, this sort of palace intrigue that we see. And uh, the fighting lots of times was coming from within Israel itself. The, uh, the people there through the Old Testament, we see they fall uh, into idolatry and then they sort of repent and they work their way back out of that. And then they uh, trust the Lord and then they start trying to do things their own way again. And they just kind of have this pattern where they're uh, obedient and they're falling away and they're living in sin and God judges them and they're obedient. And, and it just sort of continues like that, oftentimes in a cycle. And so in uh, 1 Kings 4 and 5, what we see is a level of peace and of permanence that were not normally the uh, experience for the, uh, for the Jews. And as Sam did say in the WhatsApp group earlier this week, it's a long, it's a long passage, so we're not going to read all of the verses here, but we are going to summarize some of the bigger chunks and then look down at some uh, important principles that, uh, that we're going to find out of these two chapters. But let's do pray together before we move any farther in, okay? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the technology that, Lord, while um, um, we are forced to meet um, virtually at this point, Lord, we know that you are still with us, and so we rejoice in that. We pray that as we look at your word that uh, you would speak to our hearts. We pray that we would be fertile soil and that these truths would fall into us like seeds and Lord, that we would produce a crop that is 30, 60, 100 fold according to what you have uh, ordained. And so we pray that you would bless our time together over these next few minutes. We pray Jesus that your name would be exalted 
that uh, you would equip us to do the work of ministry in the fields that you have put us into uh, work in and watch over. So we pray that you would just guide this time, Lord, in the next few minutes, uh, Lord, throughout uh, the years as this video sits uh, on YouTube, it's on, it's on Facebook and people encounter it. I pray that uh, whether it's years down the road or whether it's this very morning that you would speak to hearts, that you would save people, that you would change the course of eternity for some because of what we do together here today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, here in uh, One King so far, we've seen uh, David really start to pass away from the scene. He passes the kingdom to Solomon. He gives uh, Solomon, his son, some instruction, and then he uh, dies and he moves away. In chapter two, we start to see some retribution and there's some uh, revenge, right? As the power moves from David to Solomon, uh, that, that ends up in some people losing their lives. Some, uh, some delayed justice maybe in Solomon's mind and some people are uh, killed and the kingdom is firmly established in the hands of Solomon. And then in chapter three, we see he prays for wisdom to lead, God, to lead God's people. And then he actually starts to display that wisdom as well. And this is the wisdom that ultimately Solomon becomes really uh, famous for. Then in chapter four, uh, when the text that we're going to look at today, form five, as we open up chapter four, we get this long list of officials. We get a long list of people and their names and their jobs and uh, where they live and the things that they do and these different kinds of things. And that goes on from chapter four, verse one, all the way down until verse 19. And when I come to a big list like this of uh, foreign sounding names and uh, places that I don't know where geographically where they all fit in, I often wonder, what am I supposed to get out of this list? And I'll pray and ask the Lord, what am I supposed to get? I don't understand what I'm supposed to be getting from this list. And you know what? Honestly, most of the time, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be getting from a list like that. But I do know that the list was recorded and I do know that the list has been preserved. And so I trust that there's meaning for the list, even if for my life, maybe for your life on this particular day, we don't see a lot of uh, meaning behind all these names and villages and all those kinds of things. Sometimes we just come to a place in scripture and it's important, it's inspired, but it's not necessarily speaking to me and my particular situation at this time. And that's kind of what I have to think about when I read a list of names and people and places, I think the specificity is important. I think these details are very important. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been recorded and they wouldn't have been preserved. We can see that they have an incredibly organized system and, uh, and all over the country, like these parts are moving together and they're uh, taking care of the king and they're taking care of his people and they're taking care of uh, all of this um, situation that Israel finds itself in. Then we get to verse uh, 20, and through the end of the chapter, from chapter 4, verse 20, down to 4, verse 34, I think we have one big main point that rises out. And that main point in that section is, there is a no one like Solomon. There's no one like Solomon. Never has been any one like Solomon. Never will there ever be someone that is like Solomon. Uh, in English, we have, um, of course, some ways that we like to communicate things, and this is true in all kinds of languages, right? So when I moved to uh, Indonesia, when we moved to Malaysia, when we got to be around other people, I, I really did learn um, other people communicate much more with 
facial expressions than uh, we do in America. We, I mean, we communicate a lot. I, I, I show too much emotion on my face sometimes, but there would be a subtlety in communication with uh, a Filipino a brother or sister that I would just notice they would say something and the intonation maybe would be a little flat, but their face would say a whole lot. Like if, if I'm going to choose a facial, I might, right? But my voice and the intonation and the facial expression, at least in my mind, they all match. But uh, with other cultures, it's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be uh, exactly the same. Uh, here in the U.S., we love to emphasize certain things by putting them in groups of three. So we might have uh, in an advertisement, somebody would, would uh, they would have a drink and they would say, oh, it's clear and it's cold and it's refreshing. Oh, it's clear and it's cold and refreshing. We would have three things that we would put together like that. Or a hotel uh, on a website, it might say the beach is long and it's wide and it has white powdery sand. And we would think, oh, that's the kind of beach that I want to go to. And we, we emphasize by putting things in threes like that. I don't know why uh, here in the U.S. we like those kinds of things, but, but we do seem to like those kinds of things. And whatever it is, if you're from Nigeria, if you're from uh, China, if you're from uh, Sabah, Sarawak, then you're going to have in your different cultures different ways that you like to um, bring about a certain kind of emphasis. So one of the things that I want us to see here as we move through this portion of chapter four, uh, yeah, as we move through this point, a point, part of chapter four, is how Hebrews would do this kind of in the way that they, uh, in the way that they would, they would do their writing. And lots of times they would use a, a certain kind of repetition, but it wouldn't just be clear, cool, refreshing. It would be one thing and then another thing and then a third thing. And then kind of back to the second thing, and then it ends back in the first thing. Okay, I know this is—I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and so uh, this is—but I think it's it's important for us as we look at uh, this latter part of chapter four. I really want you to see this because I I think that the writer, what we're seeing is they really are saying there's no one who's ever been like Solomon. And so let's just let me show you what it looks like actually in the verses as we pick it up in verse twenty. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, right? That's one of the promises that God gave Abram uh, all those years ago. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer and gazelle and roebucks and fattened fowl. Four, he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsha to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba every man under his own vine. And so you have this picture uh, there in, in verse 20, Israel and Judah were numerous, right? So we have this opening idea, Israel and Judah. And then, then in verse uh, 21, it says that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates, right? It, the idea is this area is massive. And then we go into this list in verse 22 and 23 of all of the food they had, this many cows and this much wheat and all these different kinds of things about all that they had. 
And then we come back again to how big the area was in verse 24. He had dominion over all of the region west of the Euphrates. And then in verse, the end of verse 24 and into verse 25, we're back to talking about Israel and Judah again and how they were at peace. And so that's the kind of thing that we see lots of times in Hebrew poetry as it moves out and then it comes back. We, we get this emphasis and then we come back and we see the, uh, the next kind of thing that's happening. We see another kind of emphasis that happens in the next few verses too. This is like uh, one thing and then that thing plus something else and then that thing plus two other things, right? And so we see that, uh, that should say verse 26 for, uh, for A there, but this is, this is what it talks about in verse uh, 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls for his chariots and 12,000 uh, horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. Each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. So you have this, one, Solomon had lots of horses. Two, Solomon didn't lack anything in the world. And then the, the so Solomon had horses. He had, he didn't lack anything. That's the kind of, up one and then the next up one is even his horses didn't lack anything there was so much abundance that even the horses had too much everybody had too much that's the kind of a king that solomon was or you see this there's solomon had wisdom that could not be counted in verse 29 solomon in fact had more wisdom than all the people in the east and in egypt beyond that solomon had even more wisdom than anybody you've heard about. And in chapter four, verse 31, it lists out some specific people that the reader, the original reader, they would have known these names. Otherwise the names wouldn't matter. So those are in there, so right? So we have this picture where Solomon, there's never been anyone like him. It goes on in verse 32 and following. And it says that Solomon, he wrote all of these proverbs and Solomon wrote all of these songs. Solomon knew all about the trees from the very biggest tree to the very smallest tree. Solomon knew all about all kinds of fish and birds and animals. Solomon knew all of this stuff. And people from all over the world, it says, when you get down to verse 34, people from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth, they came because they had heard about his wisdom. And so this it's a great Hebrew picture as they do their writing that they're emphasizing, emphasizing, emphasizing over and over in these different ways. There is no one like Solomon. There's no one like Solomon. That's kind of the picture that we get out of chapter four. Then we roll into chapter five and we get this king who's so incredibly wise. He sets his heart to build the most important building in the world for them anyway. It's going to be the temple of God. Let's just read in chapter five, uh, and we'll start in uh, verse, verse one. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Verse four, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. 
And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to my father David, your son, whom I will set on your, th uh, on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so Solomon's really set about to this idea that he's going to build the house for God. A few books back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David did the same thing. David said, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. He says, why is it okay for me to live in a house while God is staying in a tent in the tabernacle? But uh, God says, no, David, you're not going to be the man to build this place for me. I don't need a house that you build. I, I'll take care of myself. But he does renew this promise to David. And he says, your son's going to build a house for me. And I'm going to have your son stay on the throne for uh, forever. One of your sons will be there forever. And so we see here in uh, 1 Kings 5 that two things needed to be in place for this temple to be constructed. First, there had to be a man of peace, right? We see that David couldn't build the temple because David, there was just too much bloodshed that surrounded him. It was kind of constant war and all of these things had gone on. So we need to have a man of peace. And then secondly, we need to have a time of peace as well. It's going to be hard to do construction, right? We see that in, uh, we see that in, Zach, uh, in, um, oh, I, I'll have to, it'll come to me. Well, um, when they're building the wall around Jerusalem, when we're building the wall around Jerusalem and the people are working with one hand and they have a sword in the, uh, other hand and and we we're it's just impossible really to do a lot of a uh, forward minimum minimum uh, progress and any of that kind of thing while we are being surrounded by uh, turmoil and battle and danger and all of those kinds of things so the question really that I want us to think about as we're uh, moving through chapter five is this why did the tabernacle why did the temple why did it matter so much well why are these places such a big deal right we just meet in a shop house when we can meet we don't have to have some place that's uh incredibly fancy we can have worship uh virtually we can do all of these kinds of things in a different way so why was it so important then to have uh this temple or to before that to have the uh tabernacle well it was because it was god's plan to always be among his people when uh, things started to move in the garden, then uh, when things, uh, when the Bible begins, the story begins in the garden, we see that, um, that God is physically walking with uh, Adam and Eve. He had a desire to be with them. He had a desire to be with them. And when uh, he was walking with them, then when he gave them the covenant, it was because he had a desire to be with them in a way that he wasn't going to be with other people in the world. When they were wandering through the wilderness, God was guiding them. He was guiding them by cloud and he was guiding them by fire. God wanted to be with them. And there in the tabernacle and in the temple later on, that is his very presence. They had the holy of holies where the uh, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, and that really represented the presence of God. God was going to be in the midst of his people in this building, in their city. God was going to be with them. Later on, of course, we see Jesus, when he comes and takes on flesh, he's, he's coming to be with his people, physically with his people. And later on, even when the Holy Spirit's poured out on us as believers, we know that God is with us. He's with his church. He's with the believers. He's with his people 
all the time. Even when we think uh, way off into the future, right? When we think about uh, this life ends and we'll be in heaven someday, the future hopes not just that we'll be in heaven and that there's not going to be any, uh, no tears and no sickness and no difficulty and all of those kinds of things. The thing that will be great about heaven is that we will be with God. Because if heaven were somehow, we could go to heaven and not be with God, it, it wouldn't be paradise. It just wouldn't be. It would be uh, something altogether different. So uh, I believe we needed a peaceful man to build and a peaceful time to build because the Lord is really symbolizing this thing that he is trying to do with his people. He wants to be with them. And he wants to be providing protection and provision and his presence beyond a way that they ever really imagined. And even here with Solomon, he's trying to do those things among his people, but uh, it, just, it just doesn't last, right? It's a very unique time for uh, Israel. They didn't, uh, at that time, really uh, experience a long, long period of peace. Before that, there had always been some uh, war and battle and difficulty. There had always been a real struggle with them as a people. After this period, there's, you know, the country breaks apart and there's all kinds of difficulty. So they didn't really experience a long, long period of peace. They normally had enemies on all sides. And that kind of continues up to this very day for uh, the people of God. Sometimes the Lord would use foreign kingdoms to come in. We were talking about that cycle earlier where they would be um, obedient and then they would kind of fall away and obedient and fall away. And sometimes they would be disobedient and God would send in a foreign power like Assyria or Babylon, and he would carry his people off into uh, exile. He would allow them to be taken away, which I think is, is really interesting because even when we're looking at punishment from God, the real punishment that people endure is separation from him. He wants to be with his people. And when you're punished, he removes himself. He, he sends you away. And that I think that just says a lot about his ultimate plan. And it says a lot about why the temple was so important. Solomon was going to build this place. And Sam will look at that in more detail next week. And as we move through one Kings here, but the temple was going to be a, just a grand place. And it was going to be the most important place in the world for the Jews at that time. But even that temple, once it's completed later on, it's destroyed and they rebuild it. And then later on that's destroyed. It's just, uh, it's just not a peaceful story for Israel for the most part. Things, they have periods where things will go well, but, but pretty generally it's, it's almost always turmoil. But we have this moment in time where Solomon is the greatest king ruling over the greatest empire in the world. We have this picture of what God's been trying to do all along. But even then the picture is really kind of uh, imperfect. There's some real problems with it. If we go back to 1 Samuel in chapter 8, starting in verse 10, it says this. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king, and he said to them, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and some to make implements of war and the equipment for the chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and he will give it to his officers and their servants. Samuel prophesies and says, you're asking for a king, but this is not going to go the way that you want it to go. And the people still say, we want a king. We want a king so that we can be like all the other nations. So when we get here in 1 Kings 5 and the temple's ready to be built, we see forced labor. We see people who are conscripted and they're forced to go and work as stonecutters or people who are forced to go and they'll go for a month and they'll go home for a couple of months. But God had told them, if you want a king, this is how kings are going to operate. They're going to have a system that really was like uh, taxes and a bit like the draft. And they were going to be taking away the best of your produce. They're going to take away the best of your children and they're going to, they're going to treat you like servants. And the people say, that's, that's really, that's still what we want. So even though Solomon is the wisest king who ever lived, according to this story, there's still some real problems with uh, what happens with um, the way that all of these, the way that all these things happen. So what then do we do about uh, how we, how we should be living and how do we apply, you know, a, a, a long list like this and kind of, um, it, it, it doesn't just seem like uh, this is as easily applied as some places in the scripture, maybe. Here's the first thing. Uh, I would say sometimes our understanding of the word requires some study, right? Anytime we pick up our Bible, we realize that there's a letter inside or there's a prophecy inside or there's a word inside, there's a story inside. And that story is going to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. And so the, the culture and the context and the communication matters. For us to really understand it best, we have to understand more than just the words that are on the page. That's why we would think about a little bit, you know, what's in chapter four about the way the Hebrew poetry or way that Hebrew writing would work. We can't see the emphasis when we just read through if we don't understand that kind of thing. Now I'm not saying, please hear this, I'm not saying that you'll unlock some kind of hidden meaning. You're not going to unlock a hidden meaning in a text just by uh, studying it or, or, you know, continually kind of meditating over it. I think almost always when you, just a real simple reading is going to give you a clear understanding of what the text is about. But there is oftentimes imagery that's there that's used to uh, emphasize a meaning. And when we dig into historical context, when we dig into some of these kinds of things, it will guide our uh, application. And so sometimes really understanding the word does require some study. And I think it's one of the reasons that education is important. And I believe it's one of the reasons that mature spiritual teachers are important. I think those things matter. That's why God gave some to be teachers. We need teachers to help us sometimes understand some of the things that we find in the scripture. Second thing is this, even though this is a highlight of Israel's history, there are still some major problems that are going on, right? We see people killed in uh, the early chapters of one Kings here as power is transitioning, right? There's a story where a guy runs away and Solomon had said, hey, if you ever leave this city, I'm, I'm going to kill you for it. And the guy says, okay, uh, agreed. And then he leaves the city later and Solomon says, the judge, your own judgment's on your head. Why did you leave? I told you not to leave. And then they uh, kill the guy, right? They're just some people that have, they go through these kinds of judgments as part of that 
power transition. Some people are forced into labor. The citizens are having to provide for the royal house role. And probably some of that was just to excess. Did, did Solomon really need that much food when we're looking in uh, chapter four, just about uh, how well spread his table was? And definitely there's a lot of people eating at the king's table, but were there people in the countryside maybe, or people in the villages or farmers who were doing without some of the luxuries because they had to make sure that those things were provided for the king? And then sometimes what was provided for the king just went to waste. Those kinds of things probably happen. So my point with that is just because something is in the Bible, it does not make it the right thing. There are things that happen in the scripture and we can stop and say, when that happened, that, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, these people, they had multiple wives. That should not have happened. These people had slaves. That should not have happened. And we can see things that are just major problems, even when we have a highlight of Israel's history. We think about the way that uh, the kings of the world would take from their people. And uh, that was part of that prophecy where Samuel saying, you're going to ask for a king and he's going to take from you. And the whole picture, I think, of, of God when he first started this covenant with Abram all the way up to when Jesus dies on the cross is that we have a king who is giving and not a king who is taking. The whole system that God's trying to give his people is vastly superior, but they just don't want it. They want something different. The people, the people reject it. The third thing I think that we can see uh, out of this text, and it should impact how we live this week, our God is a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. He's faithful, and you can count on him, right? There may be uh, what feels like delays in some of these promises, but some of those promises, when, when uh, God promises to David or promises to Abram, you're always going to have uh, a son that's, that's standing before me, that takes a long, long time before it really comes to fruition. But just because it seems to take a long time doesn't mean that God's not keeping his word. We see uh, here in a number of places, God had multiplied the people out. Uh, that was a promise, and he kept it. He said that he would give his people peace, and uh, the people had peace. He said that David's son would build the temple, and David's son Solomon is going to build the temple. Uh, we you see that the promise is there that David would always have a descendant on the throne. And God keeps that promise in Christ. Our God is a promise-keeping God. We can, uh, we can really, uh, we can rest in that. And here's the last thing uh, as we close. We can take away from this passage this truth that God desires to be with his people. It's easy for us to feel isolated. It's easy for us to feel unimportant, but you're not isolated and you're not unimportant. Jesus died so that we could be in right relationship with God the Father. And so we shouldn't be settling for less. You shouldn't be settling for less than what God has for you. He says, I am with you always. That's what Jesus says. I'm with you always, even to the very end. We should be people who embrace that truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, there are stories like this. And while in some ways they do seem a little bit uh, obscure and we wonder maybe uh, how we're supposed to apply these things, we thank you that you uh, open up your word when we study and you can help us apply it to our lives. We're not 
kings and we're not slaves. We're not building a temple, but we still feel like these principles apply to our lives. And so thank you that we can look and see what a promise keeper you are, because there are things that we are still waiting for. And so we know, Lord, that we can trust you to be faithful uh, in our midst. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that you uh, died for us. Jesus, that you were willing to go to the cross, that you were buried and raised again on the third day, and that now there is a way that people do not have to have their sin held against them, but that we can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. And we rejoice in that. And we pray that even as you've made us ambassadors of that message, Lord, that we would send it and be faithful to carry that message uh, all over the world. So thank you for this time that we've had together. We pray that you would bless the uh, day that that's before us. Lord, help us this week to make a difference for the kingdom, protect our uh, ones who are sick. And uh, Lord, just be with those who are separated from family because of COVID. We pray, Jesus, that your uh, name would be exalted, that you would protect, watch over, and use your people. And we pray it in your name. Amen.